As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. As we have seen in the past two chapters of Romans, Paul has laid emphasis on the primacy of love in the life of a Christian. Paul is now going to move from the general to the particular, from general exhortation to particular circumstance, as Paul wants to show us how loving each other sincerely and practicing hospitality really plays out in the everyday, normal life of the Christian community. What does it really look like to walk according to love, as Paul puts it in verse 15 of this chapter. We're going to find in this chapter that Paul does not sugarcoat what love looks like in the Christian community. He's not presenting to us some romanticized view of how the Christian community easily comes to loving one another. There is a struggle to live out love in a God-honoring way. To help us do that, Paul wants to remind us of the true reality of the Christian community. This reality can be easily overlooked because of the reality of our own sinfulness and the messy nature of true community on this side of eternity. The church is comprised of people who don't all speak and think alike, who don't all have the same customs and cultures and habits. And we come to find that it isn't so easy to love those who might be different than us. But alas, love is a hallmark of the Christian community. Jesus says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? 
A nice big building with stained glass windows and a cross on the top. A Jesus fish on the back of your car. The Christian radio station playing in the background. Bible verses on your Facebook page. No, it's none of these things. You said it if you have love for one another. So Paul is going to give us some principles here in this chapter that will help us to think about how and why we should seek to love one another even despite our differences. Before we get there, though, I want us to spend a moment talking about the context of this passage. We're then going to move on to four theological principles in these verses that undergird Scripture's call to welcome each other in love. So first, the context. I encourage you to have your Bible open as we go through this passage. I think it's fairly reasonable, a fairly reasonable assumption from this chapter and on through the first half of chapter 15 that there was perhaps a divisive issue playing out within the church in Rome. I think that it is also pretty safe to say that in general this was a division between Jewish Christians, those who had previously been Jewish, and Gentile Christians. And while Paul doesn't tell us enough here to know exactly what's going on in the church in Rome, we can rule out a few possibilities. So first, on the surface, it might seem that the weak Christians here are really legalist, that they are abstaining from certain foods and drinks and participating in certain observances as some way to get saved that they think these things are in some way necessary for their salvation. But let me ask you this. If this were the case, wouldn't Paul be a little more, well, what's the word, intolerant of this sort of belief being perpetuated in the church? If all of Paul's letter to the Romans up to this point isn't enough to convince us that Paul had very little lenience for a so-called gospel that proclaims salvation by anything other than grace alone through faith alone, then perhaps Paul's pronouncement of the anathemas, the curses at the beginning of Galatians, to any who proclaim another gospel would help to convince us that surely these weak Christians were not really legalists. Paul wouldn't have spent so much time and space stressing the importance of being assured of salvation based on our justification by grace alone through faith alone in Romans and in other places if he thought it were no big deal to hold a view that we could save ourselves by doing something in addition to simply placing our faith in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. So look at the language he uses here in verse 1 of chapter 14. Immediately, he states that this is a matter of what? Opinion. It's a disputable matter. In other words, this matter that is causing division within the body is over something that is non-essential. The word used here, dialogismoi, can be translated as doubtful points or opinions as it is here. Whatever this issue is, it is a matter of indifference, as the reformers would call such Secondary issues, which are a non-essential part of the gospel message and which do not have necessarily a clear teaching in Scripture. So with this in mind, it hardly seems likely that Paul would be tolerant of any doctrinal issues that puts the heart of the gospel at stake. So, therefore, 
We should not take Paul's instruction here to welcome one another as a license to disregard essential doctrinal issues. Within the church community, there are core beliefs that are non-negotiable. And Paul will tell us later in Romans to avoid such people who are promoting false doctrines. There are actually boundaries within the Christian community about who and what is being welcomed within the fellowship. Unfortunately, some of you here have probably experienced situations in which those who claim the name of Christ have sought to marginalize fundamental theological issues as though an essential issue was merely cultural or of no great importance. We mustn't allow this within the Christian community. But having said that, we shouldn't miss that this issue, even though it was non-essential, was important enough for Paul to mention specifically. And we will see momentarily why it was important enough for Paul to address if you haven't already figured it out. So this brings us to a second possibility that should be quickly disregarded. Paul's use of the word weak to describe some within the church community should not be read as an indication of moral failing. Whatever this issue is, it's not an issue of will or of character, meaning those Paul is identifying as weak are not struggling with some persistent sin. They aren't any more prone to temptation or more easily overcome by temptation than anyone else. This is an issue of faith. What is described as weak? Their faith. The issue, therefore, should be understood as one of indecision and scruples not of strength or self-control. This is an issue of liberty of conscience. It isn't that these individuals believe a particular behavior is going to save them, nor is it going to send them to hell, but it might be that they believe that following certain prescriptions made them stronger Christians. So, just as we shouldn't understand this passage to mean that Paul doesn't take doctrine seriously, we should also not understand it to mean that Paul does not take sin seriously. Paul isn't saying that we should be unconcerned and tolerant of sin within the community of faith. Go back to Romans 6. Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We were therefore buried with him, Jesus Christ by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now this is not to say that we aren't to be patient with one another when it comes to sin. It doesn't mean that we aren't to be forgiving of one another when it comes to sin, but we should never approach sin with a tolerant attitude. This is not what Paul is suggesting here. Again, Paul's essential is based on an issue that is truly non-essential. So what is the issue? Well, it seems as though the Jewish Christians primarily were continuing in their commitment to Jewish regulations regarding diet and days. Again, based on Paul's instruction here, it does not appear that they are doing so with the belief that these things will provide for or add to their justification, their right standing before God. But think about it for a moment. If you grew up with a strict diet and celebrating certain holidays, and this was a big part of your cultural identity, then would you so quickly be able to give that up? 
On the other hand, the Gentile Christians are living in their Christian freedom. Understanding that those who are in Christ are not bound to dietary laws or certain Jewish holidays. But do you see the rub here? Do you see it? Do you see why Paul addresses this issue? Even though it's non-essential? There is something occurring that is of great concern to Paul. There are non-essential things which are causing a point of contention within the Christian fellowship. And a division has emerged within the fellowship of the church. And you can see what is happening here, right? Human nature kicks in and those who are living in their Christian freedom are shaking their heads thinking, those silly people are still holding to rules that no longer apply as though they are better Christians for doing these things. And they have begun to despise the Jewish Christians in their hearts. And meanwhile, the Jewish Christians are looking down their noses at the Gentile Christians thinking... These Gentiles do not make very good Christians. We can't believe that they just utterly disregard God's law. Don't they understand that there was a point to this law other than trying to make oneself righteous before God? Don't they know that this is one way we stand apart from the rest of pagan culture? And they have begun to condemn the Gentile Christians in their hearts. Relationships that should be mutually upbuilding and God-glorifying, have instead turned toxic. The church, which should be showing forth God's reconciliation in Christ Jesus, is instead, instead stained by separation and sin. This is a problem. A big problem. The problem doesn't really have anything to do with what's being consumed or which days are being observed. It has to do with how people are relating to one another and loving one another. One question that should arise in our minds as we read this is, how do we handle? How do we handle, as one commentator puts it, conscientious differences in matters on which Scripture is either silent or seemingly equivocal? in such a way as to prevent them from disrupting Christian fellowship. It's a question that Paul and the early church had to wrestle with. It's a question that we have to still wrestle with 2,000 years later. Now, before we turn to Paul's theological principles for handling disputes in the fellowship, we should recognize here that there is an underlying assumption, and here it is. Christians are meant to live out their lives in community with one another. We have a picture of the early church as a place where believers don't just worship together. They're not just with each other one hour a week. It's a community that also prays together and studies together and shares meals together and spends time with one another in each other's homes and gives sacrificially so that the needs of all the saints are attended to. It's a community that rejoices together and mourns together. This is done regularly. This is a day in and day out kind of life together 
This issue which Paul addresses is a division in the body of Christ due to people having differences of opinion over what really are trivial matters. But it has affected their unity and their fellowship. Now we all know that this never happens within the Christian church anymore, does it? We don't have any kind of issues like this. I'm going to meddle a little here. While some of you might have experienced the unfortunate reality that sometimes a Christian community marginalizes important issues or exalts non-essential issues, perhaps a far greater issue is that the church, at least in the United States, has found a way to insulate itself against these sort of divisions cropping up in at least two ways. First, the church has divided itself up so that among local congregation, everyone looks and acts and thinks exactly alike. And second, they have relegated their relationships among fellow believers to just one hour a week for worship. In other words, they're not actually sharing life together. If you only have fellowship with those who are exactly like you, or if you don't have fellowship at all, Or maybe if you do both of these things, then there will be no conflict, right? You know what else there won't be? True Christian community. May it not be so among us. Paul tells us to welcome one another. Some other translations interpret the Greek word translated as welcome here proslambano as receive or accept. It could be argued that these translations don't really do justice to what Paul is saying here, though. He isn't merely saying that those with weak faith should simply be tolerated or put up with. No, this word means, as one commentator says, to welcome into one's fellowship and into one's heart. It implies the warmth and kindness of genuine love. Think about it. The word Paul uses here is the same root word used in John 14 when Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will, here it is, take paralambano you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus isn't saying that he's going to merely tolerate us in his presence. He won't merely put up with us. No, Jesus is saying he's going to welcome us with genuine love as family into his father's house. Our justification means that we have been accepted by God in terms of legal status, but we have also simultaneously been welcomed by God relationally. This is why we can have true confidence that soothes our troubled hearts. So going back to Romans, note that Paul isn't trying to disguise or whitewash what these fellow brothers and sisters are in faith, truly. Paul will make clear that they are actually mistaken in their beliefs about food and observances. But he nevertheless says, welcome them with genuine love, without reproach, without correction, at least initially. He adds that we are not to quarrel over these opinions. How terrible would it be if we turned our fellowship time together as God's family into a debating chamber? 
Or perhaps worse, into a court of law in which people are put in the dock and interrogated and arraigned. Paul knows our propensity as fallen humans, even as redeemed fallen humans, to allow sin and pride to get in the way, causing us to be at odds with one another. So having established the context, and that we are to welcome one another with genuine love despite our very differences, let's very briefly now look at four theological principles that Paul gives us here to qualify this instruction. So here's where you need to be looking at your Bible. First, we are to welcome others in the Christian community because God has welcomed them. We are to welcome others in the Christian community because God has welcomed them. Look at verses 2 and 3. While one man's faith, being liberated from unnecessary concern about food laws, eats anything, another individual eats only vegetables, probably in a foolproof effort to avoid eating non-kosher meat. But Paul states that this is not reason for the strong to despise the weak, probably recognizing the strong's temptation to pity and mock or ridicule the weak for failing to enjoy their freedom and for needlessly confining themselves. Nor is it reason for the weak to pass judgment on the strong, probably recognizing the weak's temptation to condemn the strong for participating in activities that they had deemed improper. So let's be real for a minute. These are very real temptations. It is tempting to ridicule someone for being what we consider excessively strict. People generally don't use an idiom such as prim and proper as a compliment, do they? It's also tempting to condemn someone who is being what we would consider licentious. Again, labeling someone as one who plays fast and loose also is usually not spoken as a compliment. But Paul tells us to check these attitudes at the door. What Paul says here, by all intents and purposes, is... How dare you reject the one whom God has welcomed? You see what Paul has done here? It is a good and safe rule to treat someone as you would want to be treated. This is the golden rule, right? It is a better rule to treat someone as God treats them. As John Stott puts it, the former is a ready-made guide based on our fallen self-centeredness, while the latter is a standard based on God's perfection. Dearly beloved, we are to welcome others in the Christian community because God has welcomed them. Next, we are to welcome others because Christ died and rose to be Lord, both the Lord of others in the Christian community and our own. We are to welcome others because Christ died and rose to be Lord, both the Lord of others in the Christian community and our own. So look at verses 4 through 9. Paul continues his argument by asking, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? This is a question which is posed to make us consider to whom we are ultimately accountable. Paul has just previously seemingly stated, how dare you reject the one whom God has welcomed? He is now seemingly stating, how dare you usurp the position of Christ as Lord over your fellow Christian's life? This is a warning not to claim a role for yourself over another that is incompatible with the Lordship of Jesus Christ and with your own role as a servant. 
So notice his comments that follow. Paul is not primarily concerned with what food and drink is being consumed or refrained from, nor is he likewise concerned with whether one sees some days as more sacred than others. What is his primary concern? It is that whatever is done is done with conviction and the intention to please and honor the Lord. Why? Because Jesus Christ died and rose again to be Lord over our lives We belong to him. And we should seek in all things, whether in our living or in our dying, to give him all the praise and honor and glory and majesty. It doesn't matter if you only eat vegetables. Do you see it as a gift from God for which you can eat with a thankful heart, wanting to honor him as Lord? Great. It doesn't matter if you eat all manner of foods. Do you see this as a gift from God for which you can eat with a thankful heart, wanting to honor him as Lord? Fantastic. What Paul is saying here is this truth that applies to us also applies to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Our relationships with one another in the Christian community must be framed by the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus Christ as Lord over all. And so with matters that are non-essentials in all matters, we must respect each other's relationship with the Lord enough to not interfere with one another's personal convictions by which he or she seeks to give honor and praise to Jesus Christ as Lord over his or her life. And we must truly welcome one another with these convictions in a way that reveals genuine love. Dearly beloved, we are to welcome Others, because Christ died and rose to be Lord, both the Lord of others in the Christian community and our own. Third, we welcome one another because we are members of the same family. We welcome one another because we are members of the same family. Look at verse 10. This isn't just someone who has been welcomed by God. This isn't just someone for whom Christ has died and been raised to be our common Lord. This is a family member. This is a brother in God's family. This is a sister in God's family. Paul is saying, how dare you treat the brother or sister whom God calls son or daughter as anything other than a dearly beloved member of the family. I hope that family means something to us. Probably most of us have family members with whom we have differences of opinion. But you know what? At the end of the day, they are family. And I would be willing to bet that in general we are less critical and impatient and that we are more generous and tender with members of our family than we are with anyone else. This seems like such a simple point, but in the context with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are at odds with one another, it is a powerful thing that Paul does by slipping in this familial language. And it is a challenging thing for us today to see others who have differences of opinion and come from very different backgrounds as members of our very family. It perhaps helps to remember that we have all been adopted as God's children. That each of us has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and brought into God's marvelous light, brought into God's glorious kingdom, brought into God's family by grace alone. 
We were all enemies of God, dead in our sin, alienated from God. It is only by God's grace that we've been saved from the dominion of darkness and welcomed into this family. Dearly beloved, we welcome one another because we are members of the same family. Finally, we welcome each other with a perspective that we will all stand before God's judgment seat. We welcome each other with a perspective that we will all stand before God's judgment seat. What begins in verse 10 carries through to verse 12 and becomes more developed from judging another to being judged ourselves. But really this idea of not judging others falls under the larger category of God's lordship. The short of it is that we are not to step into a role that does not belong to us. God alone is judge and it is a very dangerous thing to try to usurp this role from him. So we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Paul here is reminding us of this truth. As John Stott states, we have no warrant to climb on the bench, to place our fellow human beings in the dock and to start pronouncing judgment and passing sentence because God alone is judge and we are not as we will be forcibly reminded when the roles are reversed. And Paul, quoting Isaiah 45, 23, doesn't want us to miss here the universality of God's jurisdiction. Each of us individually will have to give an account to God. We should carry the recognition of this truth into our relationships with one another. Now, we should note that this in no way forbids us from recognizing sin and calling it for what it is. Remember, the context here is dealing with a matter of non-essentials. Often today, in our culture, verses about not judging are used as weapons against people who are not trying to pronounce a judgment, but are merely pointing out what God's word clearly calls sin in warning of the punishment that accompany those who persist in unrepentant sin. Jesus does not tell us to suspend our critical faculties. Rather, he tells us that it is not our job to condemn someone to hell for their sin. This is God's prerogative. We are, however, called to recognize and avoid sin as well as hold others in the Christian community accountable. This is a way we love each other. But here, in the matter of non-essentials, we are not called to immediately correct but to welcome. So our fourth and final principle, we welcome each other with the perspective that we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As we conclude this morning, I challenge you to consider these four principles and how we as a local body of Christ can do better at welcoming one another and welcoming others. We live in a very divisive point in American history in which we are surrounded by a culture of belittling and name-calling as a way to win arguments. Dearly beloved, may it not be so in our community. Our task is not to win arguments. Our task is to truly live life together in all aspects in a way that is glorifying to God and is a visible demonstration to the world what it means to be reconciled to God and to one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is only by your grace and your mercy that we have been 
claimed as your children. That we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into your marvelous light. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you have engrafted us into your Son, Jesus Christ. You have made us part of his body and members one of another. Lord, help us to love one another and care for one another and to live life together. Lord, for you have welcomed us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us likewise to welcome one another. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.